So we're in the third week of looking at strongholds, and uh, strongholds are lies that we tell ourselves over a long period of time, and we get to the point where we kind of get stuck in that rut where we begin to think that that is how life is, that that's how life works, this is who we are. There are lies we tell ourselves about who God is, about what God's nature is, where lies we tell ourselves about who we are and what we're capable of, and they happen over a long period of time. Sometimes they get developed uh, as early as childhood or in early life development, and things happen to us, experiences we go through, things that people say over and over and again, we just begin to believe them. And because of those beliefs that we have, these strongholds, it impacts our behavior. When we try to go change the way we behave, we oftentimes focus on the behavior, not on the thoughts, but nobody changes until they change the way they think. And so the theme verse throughout the series comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, or sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, where he talks about these strongholds. He says, though we live in the flesh, we don't wage war according to the flesh. In other words, we can focus on the behaviors all day long and try to fight the behaviors, but that's not how you get anywhere. He says, rather, there's a spiritual warfare going on behind this, and these things have to do with the way that we think, the way that we see the world. He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds, these deep-seated patterns of belief says we demolish arguments in every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. There it is. That's talking about these things that we believe, these arguments, these ideas that have been drilled into our head, these you know, patterns of thinking. It's logical to think that this is how life is and this is how life works. He says, no, that's what you need to address. You've got to demolish that pattern of thinking that's deep within your, in your soul that's telling you this is what, who you are and this is who God is. Then he goes on to says. We demolish these arguments, every pretension sets itself against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So last week we talked about how the lie that we tend to believe is that we need instant gratification. We looked at that passage out of uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, that says we live in a way that basically says our God is our stomach. In other words, whatever our stomach tells us we want, that's what we want. This is kind of the idea, the, the appetites uh, of life. And it uses the analogy of how in the same way that food is hard to resist, because it's instant gratification, it's, it's a model of instant gratification. There are so many things in life we chase after because we can't imagine putting off our own gratification until later, when in reality, most of the best things in life are the things that take a while to develop. And when you chase something in the immediate, usually it's gonna be a bad decision. So we talk about behavior. This week we're gonna be focusing on relationships. And for that, I figured with the premiere of season five for Yellowstone coming out soon, uh, I would go to uh, a Yellowstone clip, and one of Rip's words to live by. Now, this was at the beginning of season four, and if you've seen the show, uh, a lot of people had some questions about this scene. Uh, if you haven't seen the show, the kind of the, the background of this is Rip was an orphan who was taken in as a young child, and now here he is later on in life, and his wife meets this kid who's kind of an orphan himself, and she decides she's going to adopt him without telling him. And so he gets home and sees this kid in the kitchen, and he's like, no, I'm not doing this. And so then he's like, all right, fine. If this is what you really want, I'll do it. And so he makes him the stable boy. And so he's in there cleaning up the manure. And it's kind of this odd moment where he's cleaning up the manure, and then he looks at the kid and he says, don't think you deserve it. And you're like, no. This is not modern parenting. Is it fair to say that that is not <laughs> typically what we would say? You know, we're, we're just so excited when little Johnny does any kind of work. You know, we're, we're going to give him $10 just for cleaning his own room. That's kind of how we work in our society. Wow, look at you. Good boy. Good boy. Here's, here's to, hey, let me give you 20, right? Whereas he's looking at this kid as a stable boy, and he says, you know, if you want to eat around here, you need to clean the stables. And here's your trick. Don't think you deserve it. 
to kind of understand that piece of wisdom, you also sort of have to understand what the show is all about. The, the show is all about, I think the reason why it's so intriguing, is about a family who is living off the land, living with old values, and they're trying to continue their old way of life while modern culture keeps pressing in all around them. That's sort of the, the theme of the show. And so here you have him trying to tell his son, or his a new adopted son, don't think you deserve it, this kind of old wisdom, and it flies right in the face of our cultural ideas about how to parent and how to raise kids. I mean, after all, you deserve it. You know, you, you, we need to lift up the self-esteem, and here he is looking at this kid saying, don't you think you deserve it? And it seems like he's being mean or rough to the kid. Yet here's the, here's the reality to it. It really is the trick to life. The thing that causes us the most problems in life is forgetting that little piece of wisdom right there. When you go through life thinking you deserve it, that's what causes you problems in all your relationships. And it begins, and it's at the heart of the reason why people have a problem with the relationship with God. Now, for those of you in here who call yourself a Christian, you among any, above anybody else should understand you don't deserve it. After all, that was like the only question on the entrance exam to becoming a Christian. <laughs> right? That was it. Do you deserve it? Yes. Okay, sorry, you're not in. Right, because at the heart of that is the understanding of grace. What's the definition of grace? That I don't deserve it. Recognizing it's all a gift from God. That's, that's what grace is. Now, every other world faith out there, every single one of them is on the basis of you need to earn it so you can deserve it. Every single one. You look to their core, you earn it so you can deserve it. That's why the, the, the Buddhists have an eightfold path. That's why the uh, Muslims have a, the five pillars. Uh, the Sikhism, I think, has three pillars. Uh, Hinduism has a whole path you go through so you can achieve uh, nirvana and uh, move towards reincarnation. Uh, what am I missing out? Uh, did I mention Sikhism with three? Yeah, Sikhism has three. Uh, the classic misunderstanding in Judaism was to believe that the law would make you righteous, that if you followed the law, that that would make you righteous before God. And Paul goes on to extensive lengths in the book of Romans and the book of Galatians to try to explain to them, no, that is not how you become righteous over and over again in that. I'm just going to give you a snippet out of Romans. He says to the, to the Jews who believe that they're becoming righteous by the law, that they deserve their standing before God. He says, no, no one is righteous, not even one. This is Romans 3.10. No one is righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Everyone's turned away and become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And he kind of crescendos that up with Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us deserve it. That, that's his message over and over and over again in Romans. And then over in Galatians, he's got a group of people who became Christians, and then they told everybody they had to earn their salvation as a Christian. And he says, no, you idiots. Who, who told you this stupid guy? Who told you this stupid idea? If you read some of the uh, translations, he uses that word stupid. Uh, some people don't like the word, but it's... It's a strong word that's kind of in there in, in chapter 1 and chapter 3. And then he goes, he says, clearly, this is chapter Galatians 3, he says, clearly nobody who relies on the law is going to be justified before God. For the righteous live by faith. You, you, cannot, you cannot get to the point where you feel, you cannot get to the point where you deserve anything from God. Jesus would explain it this way. Jesus' message was all about this too, over in uh, this, the classic Sermon on the Mount. He says to him, listen, if you're trying to become righteous before God by what you do, your righteousness would have to surpass even the most righteous among you. It can't be done is the idea. It cannot be done. You can never get to the point where you deserve grace from God. You can never deserve to be forgiven. Forgiveness at its core is grace. Why? Because God loved you. No other reason. And until you recognize that the only reason why you are loved by God is because of grace, 
you don't have a right relationship with him. As long as you think you deserve it, you're going to have a jacked up relationship with God. But because, and this is what happens, the problem with modern Christianity, the reason why Christians are so judgmental is because the longer people are in church, the more they forget that they came in there by grace in the first place. And so when you see somebody else who desperately needs grace, instead of showing them grace, you give them judgment. Why? Because they need to clean themselves up. They need to act more like me. Why? Because you deserve it? So they can deserve it? No, nobody deserves it. The core dysfunction in our relationships is the idea that I deserve it. And that's a core dysfunction we have with God, and you're also going to see it's a core dysfunction we have with one another. So the very core of things is the idea that I deserve it is your dysfunction when it comes to relationships. So after everything Jesus teaches, he's over and over and over again, he's been trying to correct, because uh, when Jesus comes in and, and talks with his disciples, they're coming into this culture of Judaism that somehow gravitated towards this idea that we deserve our standing before God because we keep the law and that's how we become righteous. And so over and over and over again, he tries to knock this down, knock this down, knock this down to teach them you are only made right before God because of your relationship with him and that's it. And so, the, so as he's taught this all along, and he's sitting there with his disciples just before he's about to die on the cross for them, and he says to them in John chapter 15, he says this, he says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. For greater love is no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. So there he summarizes it all up and he says, I want you to love others as I have loved you. In the same way that the whole relationship with God is based on love and not on merit, love one another just as I've loved you, that your relationships would not be based on merit, but based on love. Sounds easy enough, right? Except for when Paul goes and applies this especially to the marriage relationship. Now, you're going to see very, very similar structure in this next verse. Uh, as to what Jesus says, and it is a outflow of it. Love has different forms depending on where you're at and who you're with. And so in this situation of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, in the same way Jesus says, love one another as I've loved you, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And he's going to go on to show how Jesus Christ submitted himself to us. What did he do? He submitted himself to death on the cross. Now, that word submit... I don't know if there's any word that we have a harder time in 21st century America than this word of submit. I will submit to nobody. I will bow to nobody. I will give in to nobody. The last thing on earth I'm going to do is to submit to anyone. Now, if you're students of the Bible, a lot of you know the next verse after this one, but you didn't get this verse. The very next verse is one I often get calls about. And every time I get a call, I just kind of go, oh. You know what the next verse is? In English translations, it says, wives, submit to your husbands. Some of you are like, oh, thank God, I can't believe we're here on this day. Honey, listen up, listen up, listen up, <laughs> right? The actual Greek text, though, just says, wives to your husbands. The word submit's not actually in verse 22. Uh, it's a part of the way the Greek language was written, as they would borrow a verb from the previous verse or from the previous sentence into that sentence. And so what he's saying is submit to one another. Wives, to your husbands, and then husbands... Not that they don't submit. That's the thing. Basically, all he says, you need to submit to one another. Wives, that's really much all I'm asking of you. Husbands, I want you to love. I want you to go beyond. I want you to, and he goes into what exactly it looks like for a husband to lay down your life the same way that Christ laid down his life for the church. Now, also keep in mind, in their culture, telling a wife to submit to her husband was nothing new. It was like, of course. <laughs> what else would she be doing, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking in the time that this was written, right? However, for him then to go on and say, now, husbands, you need to lay down your life for your wife. Why? 
right? Why? She's there to serve me. That was their mentality. So keep in mind, in the context which is written, the why the focus is the way that it is. But above all, what we need to hear in our 21st century is that first verse that comes before any of this. Submit to one another. We have a hard time with that. And usually it comes with a conditional clause. I'll submit to you when? When I know you're going to submit to me. And that's the reason why I laugh is because I can't tell you how many times I've gotten a call from somebody. Usually it's within their first year of marriage. <laughs> Past first year, few people ask this question. Pastor, you did our wedding a couple months ago, and I got a question. Uh, we're having some issues, and could you explain to me or my wife in particular what it means for a wife to submit to her husband? <laughs> I use a southern accent. For two reasons. One, when you're a southern white boy, there's not a lot of cultural stereotypes you can go to that don't get you in trouble other than the only one that you're from, right? <laughs> so I'll use the one I can go to, and let's face it, in the south we're known for our dumb ideas, <laughs> and that's one of them. And so it's almost like as if they're trying to get me, the pastor, to go be, you know, to like, like I'm their attack dog to go beat down their wife for them. No, that's, 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 we have to go through a whole long explanation, which I'll give to you now and I'll refer later to this message. Uh, submission. Uh, requires humility. Uh, contrary to popular thought, humility is not a character trait. It's a choice. Like a lot of times people think that there's, there, you know, Mike is such a humble guy. Like that's just, you know, when you think about it, no, it's not a character trait. It's not the way somebody just is. It's a choice. You choose to humble yourself before somebody else. Uh, the classic verse on this uh, is over in Philippians chapter 2, where it says, do nothing out of selfish, this is uh, Philippians chapter 2 verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you looking to the interest of others. So he's saying, in humility, I want you to make the choice to value other people as of greater value than yourself. That you would look out for their interests before you look out for your own. That you would consider their needs as of greater or at least equal importance to your own needs. Then he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. Now, what did we say a stronghold was? It was a pattern of thinking that was destructive, that leads to destructive behaviors, Right? And what he's saying is, I need you to change your mindset to be like the mindset that Jesus Christ had. And his mindset was this, who being in the very nature of God. Now, if there's anybody who didn't have to be humble, is it fair to say that'd be Jesus? I mean, if, if, you, if you've heard anything about the guy, <laughs> even if you don't believe who he was, let's just say that God came to earth. Would he need to be humble? No. Why? Because he's God, right? He says, but he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped or used to his own advantage. In other words, he came here and he humbled, he made himself human. He, he put himself within the, own, within the limitations that we have as a human. He says, rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. The very fact that the creator and author of life would allow the creation that he made to nail him to a cross to kill him, how much humility does that take? We'll barely let anybody disrespect us. And we come right back with the, do you know who I am? How dare you speak to me like that? Where does that come from? It comes from this mentality of what I deserve. 
the respect I'm deserved, the uh, reverence that, I, that, that, you, that you owe me, the way that you need to treat me. It all comes back to this idea. Now, in relationships, what's interesting is we all have ideas in our mind going into a relationship. So whatever stage of relationship you're in, whether you're just starting off in the dating life in the early stages or whether you've been married for quite a long time, if you can go back to that time when you were out there looking for somebody, you had these ideas of what you were looking for in that person. You had an idea of what you would be looking for in life. And, and they're varied by anybody. We, would, we don't always lay them out. Sometimes we, some people are like, here's what I'm looking for. And you, 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 you meet these requirements or I'm out. But we have these ideas like about some financial ideas. Uh, how much money we're going to make, how much money they're going to make, the kind of lifestyle we're going to have. Do I want to live in a tiny house, a big house? For some of you are very materialistic. For some of you pride yourself that you're not materialistic. But we have this idea uh, of finances, whether we're going to live on a budget or not on budget, whether we use credit or we're going to go with the whole Dave Ramsey plan. We're going to cut up credit cards and we're going to live debt-free. And every decision we're going to make is always going to go down the debt-free route. Um, uh, how we're going to get the money. Am I going to work? Are you going to work? Are we going to work? Are we just going to Go for the lottery. I mean, after all, good time to do that. If you're going to do it, please tithe if you do. Um, uh, what we're going to use our money for, you know, house, car, toys, recreation, those kind of things. Uh, we have ideas of what our family's going to look like, kids, no kids. Do we have to have a boy? Do we have to have a girl? Uh, do we want pets, cats, dogs, fish, mice, whatever else in the house? I don't know. You think about it. What do you want? What are we going to have? Uh, when it comes to family, whose family are we going to visit more? Your family, my family, no family? Are we going to spend all of our free vacation time visiting family? Or are we going to go somewhere we actually enjoy? That didn't sound right. Um, <laughs> what are the roles around the house? Who's going to do what? Uh, are you going to work inside and I'm going to work outside? Am I going to work outside you're going to work inside? Are you doing the day-to-day -day stuff and I just fill in whenever something needs to be fixed or something's broken? Uh, we have ideas about... Uh, what we're going to wear and how we're going to dress. Maybe somebody else has an idea of what you're going to wear and how you're going to dress. And that goes both ways. Uh, we got ideas about conflict that we just talk it out. We have to talk. We need to talk until we get this out. We need, other people say, no, there's some things we just don't need to talk about. I think, I think what we need to do is the person who's been wrong needs to figure that out and do what's right. That's, that's really that's how we resolve our conflict. And that's pretty much the way a lot of people go through life. So we have these ideas about all of these things that factor into a relationship. And so when you find that perfect someone, you're sort of sizing them up based on your expectations. Now, some of those expectations you'll share, some of them you won't. Some of them you just assume that over time, because they love you, they'll want to what? Make all your dreams come true, right? That they'll want to meet your every desire. That that's, that's really what a relationship's all about, that you meet my desires and I meet your desires. And so you get into a relationship and you automatically expect this person's going to do all of these things for me. Now, when you move to expectations, it's another way of saying this is what I deserve. These are the things I need in life, and this is what your responsibility is. And so you can begin to see how this dissolves a relationship pretty quick. Where if you go into a relationship and you have the idea that everything in my life is 100% my responsibility and everything you do is just absolute gravy. Like, wow. I used to preach this. I didn't really understand this until after Melissa passed. Because the idea that, you know, like we, we have this idea, like you do your part, I do my part, that's what relationships are about. Kind of like, you know, we always say these words like, I'll meet you halfway, right? I do my part, you do your part. Here's the reality. If you go into the relationship where you understand that everything is your part, like laundry, that's your job. 
Mowing the yard, that's your job. Fixing the house when, it, when there's a leak, that's your job. Taking care of the kids when they're crying, that's your job. I'm saying this for you. Not, no, don't, don't, don't. I don't care how you split it up. It's all your job. If you go into it with that mentality, then when your spouse does something, you're like, oh my gosh, you did my laundry? No way. It's almost impossible for an old married couple to have that, idea, have that sense. Because over time, you get into these routines, and it's like, I deserve to have my laundry done, because after all, what else are you doing? <laughs> the groans I heard was, how dare you say it, but can we be honest? Somebody's thinking it, <laughs> right? We have these thoughts. We have these thoughts, right? I'll never forget, after she died, the very first week, I realized very clearly, laundry is 100% my responsibility. I'm the only one in the house. The kids are 100% my responsibility. There's no, it's your turn. There's nobody else to take a turn. It's 100% my responsibility. Now, in the dating game, when somebody would do my laundry, I'd be like, oh, what? You came over, you... You just did laundry for me? You're amazing. <laughs> you did the dishes too? <sighs> to my own shame, years ago in marriage, I never had that kind of reaction. Because whether or not I expressed it, deep within there was this stronghold, the idea of you do your part, I do my part, and I deserve to have a wife who does X, Y, Z. You may think, I deserve to have a husband who does X, Y, Z. After all, that's your job. That's what you're supposed to do. But when you take away all the expectations, when you take away all the, this is what I deserve, this is what I am owed, it changes your entire outlook on relationships. It opens you up to actually be able to serve the other person in humility. Because if I think I deserve something, I'm not going to serve. As soon as that kid thinks he deserves something on that ranch, is he ever going to want to get in there and shovel that manure? No, never again. And somehow we have a mentality that at a certain point in our life, we don't have to do those things anymore. Whether it be for our spouse or for our friends, we see this in the office place where there are some tasks that are beneath us and so we never clean the office microwave, no matter how nasty it looks. Why? Because that's not my job. I'm in charge around here. I don't do that kind of thing anymore. No, no, no. When you begin to believe that you deserve something, that is a stronghold in your mind that will keep you from a relationship with God and it will destroy the relationships that you have. The stronghold that I deserve will keep you from a relationship with God and destroy the relationships you have. When you begin to realize that your relationship with God is 100% based on grace, it's only because God loved you, then you can understand when Jesus then says, and the way that you've been loved by me, I want you to love others. And how does that look like in the context of a relationship? In the same way that I've submitted myself to you, submit yourself to one another. Humility is a choice. Would you want the music close? Father, such a simple message, yet one that's so profound and so hard to take to heart. Father, the simple idea that I don't deserve it. It's only when I realize before, when I come before you, Lord, that I do not deserve anything. 
It's only then that I can understand grace. But in my relationships, Lord, when I begin to understand I don't deserve it, I'm not owed anything, and I can remove the expectations I've put on the people around me, that I can find joy and appreciate every little thing that happens. So, Father, may we reorient our life, and may you change the way we think. Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.